2: Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. We will get to our story in a moment, but first, I would like to thank all of our fans out there. We cannot do this without you. Please be sure to leave us a positive review and tell a friend about us. The more you share our podcast, the bigger we become. We have surpassed a million downloads, and it's all because of you. Now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. It's time for a new mystery. co-host, Steve Yoder, and with us as always is our researcher and journalist who has spent more than 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal, Paula Schleiss.
0: Hi, everybody. The first woman to die in Ohio's electric chair was Anna Marie Hahn in 1938. She was convicted of one murder, the poisoning of an elderly man she had befriended, But make no mistake about it, she was a serial predator, romancing, robbing, and killing elderly men in Cincinnati's German community. The other thing that stands out about Anna Marie Hahn is how she died. Where many condemned people go to their deaths regretful or stubborn or simply stoic, Anna Marie fought and begged so hard, she had even the prison warden in tears. We'll never know exactly how many people Anna Marie killed. She suspected of at least eight, as well as five other unsuccessful attempts. Perhaps the bigger mystery here is why it took so long to catch her. In 1932... Ernest Kohler was 62 years old and living in a three-story turn-of-the-century house. It was more space than he needed, so he rented out the lower floor to a doctor that had been treating him for cancer. And on the second floor, he found tenants in the Hahn family, Philip, a Western Union telegraph operator, his pretty new wife, Anna Marie, and their young son, Oscar. Kohler himself lived alone on the third floor and he suffered from throat cancer. So Anna Marie was a welcome source of help. She did some light cleaning, prepared his meals, and doled out his prescriptions. On May the 6th, 1932, Ernest Kohler died. Yes, it had cancer, but no one was expecting it. Not that suddenly. As a matter of fact, Several anonymous calls were placed to the county coroner suggesting Kohler might have been poisoned. An autopsy was done. No toxins were found, and Hamilton County Coroner Scott Kearns ruled he'd died of cancer of the esophagus. Kohler was cremated, and his ashes were given to Anna. And why not? Just 15 days before his death, he changed his will, leaving everything to his helpful tenant. His money, his car, the very house they lived in. And what a stroke of luck for Anna. Because that doctor on the first floor, while well, he had a supply of blank prescription forms that were hers for the taking, Anna, the serial killer, was open for business. Who was Anna Marie Hahn? She was born in 1906 in the Bavarian town of Fusen, just north of the Alps, and within sight of the famed New Schwanstein Castle. She was the youngest of 12 children of Katerina and George Filser, and was spoiled the way the babies of families often get their way. Her father was a cabinet and furniture maker, and they raised their children Catholic. When Anna was still a teenager, She committed the ultimate sin, as far as devout parents would see it. She became pregnant. She gave birth to a healthy boy, Oscar, but her father was beyond humiliated. It took more than two years to get a travel visa, and then her scandalized family sent her off to America to stay with some elderly relatives, Max and Anna Doshel. She arrived in Cincinnati in 1929 at the age of 22, a pretty blonde with hazel eyes and excellent English. The now three-year-old Oscar stayed behind in Bavaria. Anna kept her child a secret. Her host family in America did not know of him. Anna's time with the Doshals, who lived in the city's over-the-Rhine district, was brief. It started bubbly enough at the train station, but cooled quickly. Within weeks, and without a word to anyone, she moved out and into a furnished room on Walnut Street. While there, she befriended Max Doshel's brother-in-law, a retired baker and lonely widower with the last name of Oswald. She kept his house and kept suggesting they might marry and so he opened up his bank account to her. That's when Anna Marie became a fixture in gambling halls and race tracks. She loved nothing as much as betting on the horses, and her new sugar daddy paid for it all. By the spring of 1929, she'd landed a job as a chambermaid at the Hotel Alms. Meager wages, but more money to support her habit. And the following year, she met Philip Hahn. They bonded during a German dance at the hotel, then slipped away to New York to get married. Anna never told her wealthy baker Oswald that she'd wed another. For the next year, she continued to visit him regularly, helping herself to his money. In 1931, Oswald made out a new will, leaving $5 each to his two children and the remainder of his assets, including his home, to Anna Marie. The first person in America whom Anna told about her son was her new husband, Philip. She said she had been seduced as a young girl by a prominent doctor in Vienna who tossed her aside once she would become pregnant. Philip accepted the news of little Oscar and sent Anna to Bavaria to retrieve him. The trio began their life together as a family in a modest but brand new home on Savannah Avenue in the College Hill neighborhood. Now, Philip never knew Anna was stealing money from a widower she had promised to marry. He thought she was simply good with the household budget. And that's where he thought the money came from when Anna proposed they buy a small delicatessen. They bought one and then another, both on Colrain Avenue. But it was the Great Depression. They were terrible at business, and both delis failed. The couple even lost their College Hill home when they couldn't make the mortgage. Oswald, who Anna had been skimming from for years, Died in 1935. He'd already moved into a nursing home, so Anna never got his house. When he died, he left no assets at all. Anna had already taken everything. Right before their businesses failed, things associated with the Hans started to catch fire. First, it was one of the delis. The cause was ruled a careless smoker, and the insurance company paid up $300. Then, two more fires at the Han home one in 1935, another in 1936. The Hans collected $2,000 for those. The Cincinnati Fire Department always considered those fires suspicious. But Anna must have thought the insurance industry was really working for her because she tried to take a life insurance policy out on her husband. Philip and Anna had a rocky marriage, and there came a time they were married in name only. They lived together, but rarely saw each other. After losing the delis, Philip took a job driving a taxi and later returned to Western Union. Anna was away every day, all day, befriending elderly gentlemen. It was just as well. Any time the Hans were in the same room together, an argument would break out. One day, Philip learned his wife had tried to apply for a $10,000 life insurance policy on him, but the application was denied as being too high, America being in the midst of the Great Depression. Soon after, Philip and his mother Maggie both became ill after ingesting some candy Anna had made. They recovered, but they were pretty sure Anna had tried to poison them. Philip found a suspicious prescription bottle. He kept and hid it, just in case. Throughout their marriage, Anna had been working on her grifting skills, but she wasn't exactly subtle about it. There were numerous stories people talked about. Men she'd borrowed from and repaid with bad checks. Fake bond notes exchanged for cash from a safe. Businesses that gave her a tab but couldn't get her to pay her bill. At least twice, women who had befriended Anna fell ill and died. One man who got sick every time Anna fed him finally ordered her out of the house and insisted she never return. Even the druggist started refusing to fill some of Anna's prescriptions, telling her they were too dangerous, and she couldn't possibly have a use for them. Police came to know Anna through the multiple complaints they'd received, but nobody was stopping her. And in 1937, Anna went on a killing spree.
1: Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living, available to buy now wherever books are sold. The
0: next to die was Albert Palmer a 72-year-old retired railroad watchman. A Parisian by birth, Palmer lived on Central Parkway. Anna romanced him, sending him perfumed love notes. They met at a Vine Avenue casino and shared a love of horse racing. It seems like Palmer came to his senses, realized he'd loaned Anna thousands of dollars that she was not capable of repaying, but by then, he was too sick to do anything about it. Anna had slowly been poisoning him for weeks. He died of an apparent heart attack on March the 26th, 1937. His death certificate called it influenza and coronary disease. His bank account was empty. Anna found her third victim a month later by knocking on neighborhood doors and asking if there were any elderly gentlemen about, in need of help. Jacob Wagner, a 78-year-old widower who'd made a career of gardening, lived on Race Street. He accepted Anna's offer of help. Within two weeks, he was dead. Authorities found a last-minute will in his house that turned all his possessions over to Anna. That was June 2, 1937, 1937, One month later, 67-year-old George Gazelman was telling people he was engaged to be married. He was a Hungarian immigrant who once owned a farm. Now he lived in an apartment on Elm Street. He wasn't wealthy, but fancied himself a ladies' man and enjoyed the nightlife. He shared with everyone who would listen how he'd met a beautiful blonde German woman, and they had already set a wedding date for July the sixth, his bride-to-be was Anna Marie Hahn on July the sixth. George Gazelman was dead and penniless. Already, Anna had been grooming her next victim. The last confirmed death attributed to Anna was George Obendorfer, a sixty seven year old Cincinnati cobbler living on Clifton Avenue that summer of nineteen thirty seven she told Obendorfer that she owned a cattle ranch in Colorado. She wanted him to come see it. Obendorfer was in love, had already been telling people he planned to marry Anna Marie, and they seemed genuinely happy for him. The pretty woman, who was half his age, had put a spring in his step. On July the 20th, he went to Anna Marie's house and spent the night in anticipation of their train ride the next day, Anna's son, Oscar, was coming with them. Anna fed Obendorfer dinner that night. Whatever she seasoned it with, it made it hard for Obendorfer to get in the cab the next morning. She had to help him into the car. During the day-and-a-half trip west, he grew more uncomfortable. When their train arrived in Denver, they walked a block to the Oxford Hotel and took two rooms. The next morning, a porter walking by the room that Oberdorfer was in noticed the door was ajar, and the man inside was writhing in his bed in agony. Well, Anna didn't like the nosy porter asking questions, so she arranged for them to move to another hotel. And when the staff of the second hotel grew suspicious at Obendorfer's horrible condition, she bought train tickets and and dragged him onto a train for a trip to Colorado Springs. There, as he continued to vomit and suffer from uncontrollable diarrhea, Anna started looting his bank account back in Cincinnati, using telegraph dispatches and forged signatures. As the obvious end neared, Anna had Obendorfer taken to a hospital, claiming not to know him. He died August the 1st. When Anna was questioned, she insisted she had just met him on the train and was trying to help him out. Anna and Oscar returned to Cincinnati alone, but the game was over. The day after she arrived home, Cincinnati police were knocking on her door. Turns out the Colorado police wanted her charged with grand larceny for having stolen jewelry from another hotel guest. And they wanted to talk to her some more about the man who had died in her care. Investigators quickly figured out what Anna had been doing with Obendorfer. They discovered a salt shaker full of arsenic she had been using to poison him. They learned about the dispatches that enabled Anna to empty Obendorfer's bank account while she was in Colorado. And yes, they even found a pawn shop and evidence Anna had stolen that jewelry from another hotel guest. But they also began to uncover a trail of bodies left in Anna's wake. Exhumations were ordered. Handwriting experts linked her to numerous hastily written wills and forged signatures on bank slips revealing the many ways Anna had preyed on her victims. Newspapers around the country followed the investigation with rabid interest. They called Anna the Blonde Borgia, a reference to that historical mistress of death, Lucretia Borgia. Those who came forward to help investigators included her husband, Philip Hahn, who gave police the prescription bottle he had hid, when he suspected his wife had poisoned him. And Anna's 12-year-old son, Oscar, became a reluctant witness, filling in a lot of missing blanks during numerous interviews with detectives. Anna was 32 years old when her trial opened... On October the 11th, 1938, the courthouse filled with spectators hoping for a seat. A peddler named Lollipop Joe sold peanuts, chewing gum, and candy in the hallway. Those who couldn't fit into the courtroom lingered outside, hoping someone would have to leave and make room for them. Anna was on trial for her life facing the charge of having murdered Jacob Wagner. The trial lasted four weeks. Anna took the stand in her defense and denied everything attributed to her. But the avalanche of evidence was too much for her to overcome. A jury of 11 women and one man needed less than three hours to find her guilty and recommend no mercy. Anna was sentenced to death in Ohio's electric chair. She never believed it would happen. Till the very end, she was convinced the state would never strap a woman into that chair. They never had before. Her attorneys filed the usual appeals, but she lost them all. Throughout the trial, Anna was icy calm. Most believed she would be just as composed when it came to her execution. A prison matron who had guarded Anna for ten months told the Columbus Dispatch when the time came Anna would walk to the chamber with her head held high and showing no emotion. But as the hour approached on December the 7th, 1938, her poised and confident manner disintegrated in spectacular fashion. As people made a last-minute visit to her cell, she clung to them, hysterical and begging for help. Some of them who left after that, including prison warden Woodard, had tears in their eyes. At 8 p.m., someone told her, it's time. No, I'm not going, she shouted. Her prison guards had to pull her to her feet and support her weight as they marched her toward the door. She passed the cells of ten condemned men, each of them bidding her farewell. Goodbye, boys, she said. Her body sagged between the two guards and never looking up. She was a pitiful sight, not even five feet tall, her tiny body dressed in faded blue pajamas and a flowered brown smock. As she came within sight of old Sparky, she collapsed to the ground, crying, her legs thrashing as they tried to stand her back up. Oh, Heavenly Father, she screamed. Oh, God, oh, God, I can't go. I won't go. Then Anna fainted. The law requires the condemned to be conscious at their execution. No mercy there. A physician who was present waved a vial of smelling salts under her nose to revive her. She tussled with the men who strapped her in, screaming, Don't do that to me! She was so small. Her feet couldn't reach the floor and dangled freely. She begged the prison warden to save her. Please, Warden Woodard, don't do this. Please don't let them do this to me. The prison warden, reporter said he had tears in his eyes throughout the ordeal, could only respond, I'm sorry, but we can't help it. You know that. She turned her attention to others in the room, making eye contact with reporters she'd come to know during the trial. Think of my boy. Won't someone, won't anyone come and do something for me? Is nobody going to help me? A guard pulled her blonde locks aside, revealing a place at the back of her head that had been shaved. He placed a copper disc there. Her hair, once a source of pride, was a complete mess now. Anna squirmed in the chair and screamed in terror. She turned to the priest that had been counseling her, "'Father Sullivan, won't you help me?' she asked. "'The priest reached out and placed a hand on her arm. "'As the black mask was placed over her face, "'Anna calmed down long enough to caution him, "'Be careful, Father, you'll be killed.' "'Father Sullivan released Anna, "'then led her in reciting the Lord's Prayer. "'She stuttered and choked the words out. "'Halfway through the prayer,' the warden gave the signal. The prayer cut off in Anna's mouth as her body jerked and the current surged through her. The next day, a photograph of Anna Marie was hung on the death chamber wall among the 213 men the state had previously killed. Anna's attorney had asked her family back in Bavaria if they wanted her body returned to them. They didn't want it. Anna was buried at Mount Calvary Cemetery in Columbus. In accordance with church law, she was laid to rest in unconsecrated ground. Following Anna's execution, her defense attorney, Joseph Hoodin, revealed that Anna had given him four letters. Her Confession. She wanted them shopped around, sold to the highest bidder, and then the proceeds put into a trust for her son, Oscar. It is believed a motion picture company bought them for $75,000, about $1.5 million today, then peddled them to several newspapers, including the Cincinnati Inquirer, which published them. "'I don't know how I could have done the things I did in my life,' she began. Then she went on to detail how she killed Albert Palmer, Jacob Wagner, George Gesellman, and George Obendorfer. She wrote, "'When I stood by Mr. Wagner as he was laid out at the funeral home, I don't know how it was I didn't scream out at the top of my voice.' I couldn't in my mind believe that it was me. I can't believe it even today. However, they must be about me because they are in my mind and I know them. God above will tell me what made me do these terrible things. Anna wrote about her life in Germany, the disgrace that led to her lonely trip to the U.S. and the circumstances that led to her life of crime how she started gambling after losing the delis and the family home, her fear that she and Oscar wouldn't have enough to eat, and how she slipped into the habit of stealing from lonely elderly men, then killing them when they grew too suspicious of her. Given that Anna had denied responsibility up until her very death, investigators were elated to confirm their hard work and get some final answers they had been seeking. Philip remained in the Cincinnati area. He died in 1989. He never spoke publicly about Anna Marie after her death. Twelve-year-old Oscar was placed with a foster family somewhere in the Midwest and given a new name. We don't know what happened to him, but some sources said he joined the U.S. Navy during World War II and was killed during the Korean War. While Anna was convicted only of the murder of Jacob Wagner, she did confess to the murders of Albert Palmer, George Gazelman, and George Obendorfer. That's only four. She is a suspect in the deaths of four others. Two female friends of hers died, Olive Kohler and Julia Creskey. And then there was that landlord who left her house at the start of our story, Ernest Kohler and the widowed baker, Oswald. In hindsight, authorities determined all their deaths look like poisoning. There are also five people who are believed to have survived Anna's special seasoning. Her husband, Philip, and mother-in-law, Maggie. Two of Anna's friends, a woman named Mary Arnold, and George Heiss, that was the man who ordered Anna out of his house when her meals kept making him sick and a stranger named Stina Cable, who believed Anna had poisoned her drink. Credit to some of the research in this story goes to a 2006 book by Diana Brett Franklin called The Goodbye Door.
2: That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news, clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. Also, check out our new YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash c Ford/Ohio Mysteries. We are also a proud member of Evergreen Podcasts, the Evergreen Podcasts Network. For more information or to check out other shows on this network, please visit evergreenpodcasts.com. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance
1: engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine.